You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Anybody know what today is? Anybody know what happened? There was a feast, a Jewish feast. You're not allowed to answer, Brother Mark. A Jewish feast that happened last week. Uh, anybody know what it is? Purim, Purim, Purim. Okay, so what book are you supposed to read? Anybody know what book you're supposed to read during the Feast of Purim? Esther. Oh, good, man, you guys have been paying attention. Zach knew too, but he just, you guys answered too quick. He was just waiting, but I'll get you next time. I got the next question for you. What's the best? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, so last, this year it was February 25 and 26, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's whatever the Jewish calendar says it is, but we're going to do it this weekend. Uh, and, this, and today we're going to have a nice meal afterwards. It's celebrated today in the modern day. It's celebrated by uh, a really nice meal, uh, giving gifts to the poor, nice meals to the poor, giving money to the poor. And it's just a, it's just a good celebration. Uh, so we can look at this feast a little bit differently than those that would be Jewish. We're not Jewish. We are grafted in. If we're a believer in Christ, you're grafted in. So you become a Jew in sense while not in blood. So you can be grafted in and you can live uh, as God's chosen people, just like a Jew can. But in this particular case, we want to look at it as a day to recognize the work of God and his care for his people. Esther's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God by name. It's kind of unusual. However, you can't read Esther without seeing God's hand all over it. The miraculous and subtle working of God's hand throughout Esther is just like the miraculous and subtle hand of God's working at Plant Grow Harvest. If you knew what we came from, uh, a couple of guys that started off, you know, praying together, and then we prayed with some families, and then we met together as families, eventually we worked in a school, and then we got here. If you knew what we started with and what we have now, you would see that God's miraculous and subtle hand has worked on this. It wasn't by a person's personality or someone's particular drive to make uh, what we have today. So, while God's work behind the scene is undeniable, there's this antichrist, Hitlerish personality called Haman. So also Satan, we would say, is directing Haman in the background in the book of Esther, just like God is working in the background. We don't necessarily see Satan mentioned, the devil, uh, or anything like that, but we know that it has to be a particularly devilish person to want to do what Haman wants to do in the book of Esther. So Everything about God's word, particularly to the point of Christ, is about stopping the coming of Christ. Everything on the negative side of God's word, when you see the negative working of men, of other nations, of Satan, or whatever, is to stop the work of Christ. It was to stop the coming of the Messiah. And so uh, we can't ignore that God is doing a work. We can't ignore in this day, in this time right now, that Satan is doing a work. In Haman, in that time of Esther, in the time of Christ, in the time way far back from the from the Garden on, we can't ignore that both God and the and the the evil one are both doing a work, trying to accomplish two opposing uh, missions. So Esther's just a story, another example of the weakness of the evil one compared to Almighty God. The Jews had been kicked out of the land of promise. By the time of Esther, almost 100 years already, they'd been out. Some of the Jews had returned. 
a large number of them had decided to stay in Babylon, Persia, and different places because it was easier. So they had the option to go back to the land of promise that God had promised them, back to living the life that God had called them to live, or many of them chose to stay in the world. So we could really see it as the world and in heaven in that sense, or the world and the land of promise, or God's kingdom versus the world. And a large number of them chose to stay in the world. In the world, They were removed initially from God's kingdom, from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem, for two primary reasons. The first reason was they refused to keep the Sabbath consistently. 400 and some odd years, they had decided that they could do their own thing on their own time whenever they wanted to do it, and they, they just neglected the Sabbath. They no longer sought the Sabbath. They no longer kept all the offerings and doing that sort of thing. And the other thing was they no longer had God, God the Father, God the Creator God, God Almighty, Most High God. They no longer had them as their primary God. In their minds, they said, he's our primary God. He is the Almighty God. But we got these other gods that we want to keep with us. I'll read you something out of Exodus uh, 20, verse 5. It says, you shall not bow down to them, idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God only allows room in your life for him. Not for him and one other thing, not for him and one other God, not for him and one other anything. God, that's it. Amen. And then like we were seeing on, um, we saw this on maybe Wednesday night or, or maybe on Dave's doing a great job on Sunday nights. Come and hear what he's got to say. He's talking about the same thing, this supernatural conflict between heaven and earth, between Satan and God, and, and, he's, and how kind of man fits in between there. But that's a good thing to come to Sunday nights. But on Wednesday night, we mentioned this about Joshua, where Joshua goes and he meets a man, and the man says that he's the commander of the Lord's army, and Joshua falls down. And we know that it's Jesus in the Old Testament because he doesn't tell him not to worship him. He just says, whose side are you on? Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? And the man says, Jesus says, no. Not on any side. I am the side. I'm God. I'm the side. If you want to win, get on my side. And that's what he's saying. God is the side. You either are on God's side or you're out. God doesn't come to your side. You get on God's side. That's all there is. There's God's side. There's the world. Many of us kind of struggle with that because we kind of try to hold on to our side or the part we want and then attach it to God's side or include God in that side. That's called blasphemy. That's called taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So God is a jealous God. If he saves you and you are his, then he expects your loyalty. So some of the Jews had headed back to, to Jerusalem. But what's sad is many preferred to stay in exile. Even though they didn't, because they were making their businesses and they were having their way and they were having their life and things were going well, they had become naturalized and they had become assimilated to the culture. So in the past, and we talked about this a couple years ago, and I'll just remind you again, but in the past, the Hebrews were really big about naming their children Hebrew names. You know, and we talked about how Christians in the past, largely, not as much today as in the past, but still today, Christians tend to name their kids Christian names. In fact, I named my daughter Christian, which the, the transliteration is Kristen for girls, and then my son's name is Daniel Christian. So they both have Christian there. Kaylee, sorry, she, was the, she got the cold name there, not a Christian name, but Kaylee Sue. 
but Daniel is Daniel Christian. We, tried to, we always tried to name our kids. Uh, we, we used to do that. People used to be more common. That's why the name Mark is common. John is common. Jonathan, James is common uh, Christian name. All those are Christian names. Ruth, Myrtle is an old-timey Christian name. Anybody know what Myrtle comes from? Esther. Esther is Myrtle. That's the word. Esther, Myrtle. Is that your grandma? Yeah, Myrtle. It's an old lady name, but it's a biblical name. So a lot of those names came from, from biblical names. So people used to try to name their kids biblical names. We don't do that as much today. But part of it is the assimilation of the culture. The culture has changed. No longer a Christian culture, so now we name our kids whatever. We name them all kind of stuff. Um, do what? Yeah, they do name a lot of stuff with K for sure. So, so they took the names of the foreigners on their Hebrew kids. And so what it did was it made it really hard for their Hebrew kids to maintain their Hebrewness. Uh, example is he Esther, named after the god Ishtar, which was the fertility god. And Mordecai, the other big player in the book, uh, is uh, Mordecai is named after Marduk, which is the god that they were throwing the they would heat this bronze statue up and throw babies on this thing and, and sacrifice babies on Marduk. So both of them had names that were based on terrible idols of that culture. So we, we, that's a bad call. It's scary how deeply the idolatrous nature of that nation had sunk into those Hebrews. And when they had the opportunity to go back and be predominantly God's people in Jerusalem, they chose to stay in the world sad it's really a picture of of believers clinging to the worldly life when they can have god and him alone or they want god and if you want god and something else you need to kind of look at that look at esther 3 6 through 15 we're not going to read all of esther this morning that's what you're supposed to do on this feast but us gringos we we don't uh, value we value time more than uh, i don't know we don't have the right value on time maybe the uh, israelites they met for four hours um, where they read for two hours and exposited for two hours. So, but we're not going to do that, or I would probably get shot in the parking lot for two hours. So uh, Esther 3, look at verse 6. We're going to talk about Haman, and what I want to do is I want to show you something, this puzzle of God working and the evil one working simultaneously. I'm going to show it to you here, and I'm going to show it to you in Revelations. I never realized till this week, or maybe I did and I forgot, I don't know, but I never really came clear to me that these two chapters go together. Believe it or not, Esther chapter 3 and Revelations 12 are very similar stories. Look at verse 6. Speaking of Haman, who's the bad guy? Haman was filled with wrath. Just thinking about Mordecai. Mordecai, I had a picture. I chose not to put it up there. But Mordecai was just a guy that stands up to power. He's like, I don't bow to any man. I bow to God. So though he had an unbiblical name or an un-Hebrew name, he still had a heart for God. Uh, where am I? Six. Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, <clears throat> in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King A, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among your people, in all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. 
If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents, 375 tons of silver, into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took the signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Agag, by the way, King Agag was the one that Saul was supposed to completely wipe out, and he didn't. And now we're paying the price for sin that happened way back here in the past. Another message for another day. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So he could use the money. Where is he going to get the 375 tons of silver? He's going to get it from the Jews that he's going to kill. And he's going to take all their wealth and he's just going to present it to the king. The king doesn't care where he gets the money. He just wants the money. Then the king's scribes are called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to their script. So all the languages, they, they took a minute to translate all the languages so that they could send them out to all the people that this kingdom was over. The letters were sent by couriers unto all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued in, in, as law in every province, being published for all the people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and a decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. <coughs> Excuse me. So why all of a sudden, these people have lived in our midst all this time, why all of a sudden are we going to kill all these people? I mean, these are the people running the businesses. Jews, whether you know this or not, are particularly good with finances, businesses, just making it. They are God's chosen people. Whatever they touch turns to gold. They're probably, if you look in Hollywood, as much as I disdain Hollywood, a majority of the, the most talented people are Jews. Same thing in Washington. There's a ton of Jews in Washington. You look at the really high, really connect. You know George Soros? You know who he is? He's not a good man, but he's a Jew. That's a money-making machine right there. I'm telling you, a lot of people that are very high up in the money-making abilities are Jewish people. doesn't mean they're God-fearing people. I'm just telling you that as God's chosen people, they are particularly talented in some things. Music, arts, scientists. They've invented as much stuff the Jews has as about any other country, maybe besides Germany and America. Just Israel, the size of Israel. 15 million people have invented as many things that we use today as about all the other countries combined. In medicine in scientific things and mechanical things they're brilliant they're God's special people they can do special things and these people are in this midst of this worldly bunch of people and the people of this nation are like well why are we gonna go after them these guys are the ones making all this stuff anyway but the key verse there is verse 6 it says instead the second part. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus and the people of Mordecai. Why has there been this on? I mean, these people were perplexed. Why are we killing these people? Why did Hitler in World War II just that it was the Jewish problem, man? How can we get rid of these Jews? Man, they're inventing the stuff that you're using to fight your wars. Why do you want to get rid of them? Did you know that they took the gold? This is a side note, but they took the gold from the Jews when they captured them in World War II, and they put them into concentration camps. And it wasn't very long, I think about six months, and the Germans that were guarding the Jews had already taken loans out from the Jews that were inside that they had captured, 
and the Jews possessed the gold and the money of the Germans again. Somehow they were able to make money in the POW camps. And Germans were like, how are we still indebted to these guys? They're sharp. They're capable. Why, are we gonna Why do people want to destroy the Jews? There's a point in Kings, in the book of Kings, you can look this up, King Joash. I think he was the last king of the line of Judah. They're trying to wipe out that line. Why would a particular line of kings be needed to be wiped out? But Judah is, uh, Joash, I'm sorry, is protected and he's brought to the throne and is able to become king at a very young age. Interesting. Why is that? There was constant battles against the Israelites from Moses through the Roman Empire, uh, beginning where the different groups of ites, well, the Egyptians first, and then the ites and the, the Philistines and the Agagites and the Amorites and the whoeverites are all trying to wipe them out. It's an ongoing thing. It, and then from the Roman Empire through today, which the Roman Empire, it seems, is still in existence in one way or another, uh, you got Constantine doing what he did. You got the Inquisition there in the 11, 12, 13, 1400s, where they're doing what they're just killing them in droves, killing all the Jews they can. Then you got the Germans in World War II killing all they can, the, the, the Poles killing all they can. They can't kill them out. Why can't they kill them out? Because they're God's chosen people. God has a plan for the Jews. The, his plan for the Jews is not completed. They can't be killed out. You can, you can have any kind of negative view on them you want, but even through World War II and today, you know, they get their own land. England actually stood violently against the Jews getting their land. They said they wanted them to have it, but then after World War II, they tried to keep them from going back into their land. Why? What's the big deal? So then 47 and 48, 1947, 48, they have a big throwdown there, and the Jews have to fight the whole Arabic world off. 1967, the Six-Day War, they have to fight the whole world off. Then the things that happen after that, the constant harassment by the Philistines of today uh, called Palestinians, that's what the word came from, is uh, they're still battling against the world. Why is that? Who wants to see them destroyed and why is it? What's the purpose? There's always been a concerted effort to wipe out the Jews. And when will it end? Does anybody know when it ends? When does the battle against the Jews end? Well, that's right, when Jesus plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. Then and only then. And by a word, 200 million people, 200 million combatants are going to die by his word. And it says the blood that will run that day will be as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of blood. Anyway, so from the garden to Moses, Satan's attempting to thwart the rising of a special people. He's trying to eliminate God's plan right from the get-go. If I can trick Eve, and from them all the way to Moses, if I can get the, the Nephilim and whatever went on with that, with, with the, the sons of God and the daughters of men, whatever went on there, and if I can distort their bloodline, and then Noah is perfect in his generations. Well, if I can taint Noah through Shem, and, or through Ham, and, and he tries to taint them again. And if I can taint the Israelites in Egypt with idol worship, and if I can taint the Israelites in the promised land by the Canaanites and those that sinned against the Most High God and had their own idols, if I can get them to believe that, if I can stop the line of Judah because there's some scripture in here that Satan knew about that he said through the line of Judah is where the Messiah is going to come. i got to stop the line of Judah. God's like, uh-uh. i got to look at my man Joash right here. Got a king in the line of Judah right back in the line. What's that? Yeah. He gets constantly, you know, God is always more than two steps ahead of Satan. 
But Satan is constantly trying to thwart God's plan. He tries to stop the prophetic line of Judah from kings to Christ. He tries to stop the Messiah's birth. And from Christ until the tribulation, he again is trying to keep God's kingdom from reigning on earth as it is in heaven. Look at Revelations chapter 12. So keep this in mind. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Romans 12. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell you the, the, the quick side of it. I'm sorry, Revelation 12, I'm sorry. I said Romans, sorry. Revelation 12, Revelation. Yeah, Romans 12. Romans 12, solid too. Revelation, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to read you two heavy hitters. Let me tell you the story. In Revelation 12, we see, it says, the dragon takes a third of the angels. John's seeing it like watching the stars. He sees the dragon along the stars. It's a constellation. He's laying on his back out there on the island. This is before lights on the ground. He can see the sky well. He's on this island of Patmos, seeing the, seeing the heavens. He sees this dragon figure across the sky. He sees it wipe out a third of the stars. It's all a big vision. It's a bunch of, it's a, he's being spoken to by God, by Jesus. There's a lot of stuff going on here, by angels. So he sees the dragon take out a third of the angels. He sees it come after the woman, and the woman gives birth to a child. And so when we read that, we say, well, when is this happening? Is this happening in the future? Because it's in the middle of Revelation. So is this happening in the future? Is it happening in the past? Or is it happening right now? And the answer is, it's all three. When you see, one thing it says, behold a great, uh, verse 3, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. He threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as capitalized as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. All these diadems that you see on his head, these are nations that he has controlled in the past. These are people that he's tried to control in order to wipe out the line of Christ. And it can't happen. He takes out all these angels, and he is cast to the earth with them. And then he's waiting there. Well, I mean, it's kind of a, a lurid picture maybe, but the woman's in the, on the birthing table ready to have birth, and the dragon's sitting there with its mouth open, ready to devour the child as it comes out of the woman's womb. That's the picture. Snap, misses. Instead, he kills all those Israelite children through Herod as he works in Herod, and Herod has all these, these children killed in Israel, Israel, Rachel weeping for her children. But he misses the one, the most important one. He misses that one. And it says a war breaks out in heaven. And it says the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, verse 9, is cast to the earth and his angels are cast out with him. So before, he had some influence in heaven and now he has no power there. Now he's on the earth. Tragically, we are too. Look what it says here. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell, verse 12, in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. That's you people and me. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows his time is short. The only thing he can do is he can influence us now. He can harm us now on this side of heaven. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
The only thing he can do, the only thing the devil can do, the only thing the evil one can do is try to, in the short period of time he has left, even if that's 10,000 years, is try to attempt to thwart God's plans. But remember, God is 10 steps ahead. Look at Revelation 13. This is kind of scary. It sounds scary. So the world is influenced greatly by the devil. And it's going to get worse as it goes on. And it says in verse 3, it says, All the world marveled and followed the beast. So in time, the devil just continually eliminates believers in God. He continually eliminates Israelites and Jews. And verse 4 says, They worshipped the dragon. And ultimately they say, Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war against him? Who, this, he's undefe- undefeatable. What's the word? Indefeatable? Undefeatable? He can't be beat. Huh? Indomitable? There you go. He's tough. He can't be beat. You've got to pick a side. You've got to know the side that you're on beforehand. Because we know, as we go to the end of Revelations, which we will, but not for a moment, we, we know that God wins. We know that God has a plan. Even though he allows the devils, we've been talking about in Job, he allows the devil to torment men. He allows people like Hayden. He indwells Haman, and he has Haman go after God's people, trying to eliminate any chance that the Messiah could come from someone. He don't know where the Messiah's coming. He wants to kill them all. He's got to stop the coming of the Messiah. Revelation 13, 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Even when it looks like there's no hope, God's people must remain loyal to him because he's the victor. So let's go back to, let's go back to Esther. Things are looking pretty grim. The edict's been written. It says in verse 7 there, in 3, verse 7, Esther 3, verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month when it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They must have known that someday they were going to have, God knew that someday they were going to have a feast on that same day, the twelfth month of the, of the, uh, of the whatever day, it's twelfth day, I believe, too, of the twelfth month of the month of Adar. He knew, huh? Thirteenth, twelfth, I think it's two days, twelfth and thirteenth, I believe, of the month of Adar. So God's like, I'm going to have a celebration on this month. You know what? Bible says in um, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even in throwing the lot, Haman's like, all right, whatever this says, that's what I'm going to do. Ding, he throws the lot, he throws the dice, that's all it is. Throws the dice, he gets a date, we're going to do it on this day. That leaves us about a year from this time right here for him to get all these letters written to all the people and get all these uh, people, you know, stirred up against the Jews. Gives him plenty of time. But he doesn't realize that God's like, it's going to roll a one and it's going to roll a two. And there you go. And, and Haman thought he did it. Everything, I, I'm as guilty, you're as guilty. You think you're doing it. But God is sovereign. He's working behind the scenes and he's making it happen. And you're like, wow, I must be a genius. Look how this worked out. And God's like, what an idiot. You just rolled the lot, man. I made it fall on the numbers. Man, we're so arrogant. The edict had been written. The die had been cast. The only thing Haman was waiting for was for the the paper to cross the land so he can do his work. 
So Haman had worked up the plan, but he didn't realize that the plan he had worked up, God had already worked up beforehand and was going to make it happen. He was just using Haman. He was using the adversary. He was using the accuser to get what he wanted done accomplished, which is a purification of his people again. He constantly draws his people back to himself. Esther and Mordecai are very concerned for their lives, just like the saints will be in this last day when the, when the beast comes on the scene, like he already has. I got Voice of the Martyrs back there, and I got a thing from Wycliffe Bible Translators. If you don't have Voice of the Martyrs, you can look it up. I think they said it was persecution.org or Voice of the Martyrs. You can get it on your cell phone and, and read those articles, and you'll see that the beast is devouring believers every day, but the gospel will not be stopped. It will continue to grow until there's no more people left to be saved. When the last person that's designed by God, predestined by God, whatever word you want to use, is saved, on that moment, God will remove us. That will be it. Time will be over. When the last person that's supposed to be saved is saved, that will be the end. But until then, we're supposed to be diligent to give the gospel, get voice of the martyrs. But you'll see that they're being devoured even today. Esther and Mordecai are concerned about their lives, but they're absolutely correct with their response to this this uh, potential uh, persecution it begins with recognition exhortation and then fasting and prayer and faith believing the first thing is they recognize that they've not been diligent in prayer in seeking god as they should have been and so the first thing that esther does is uh when they come and tell her, the first thing Mordecai does is he starts going into fasting and sackcloth and ashes thing. The first thing Esther does is contact Mordecai, who's more wise in holy things than she is, and, he's, and she tells him, should we be fasting and praying? He goes, yeah, let's do that. Three days fasting and praying. Then we'll have the answer that we need to do whatever we got to do. So the first thing that they had was this recognition that they needed to get in contact with the God who created them. They needed to know who their daddy was. The next thing was exhortation where they look at one another and say, uh, you start praying, you start fasting, take off those sackcloth and ashes and dress like a man and let's get to work. So she exhorts him and tells him to clean up and he exhorts her and says, you got to go to the king. It's our only hope. You have to go before the king and he can give us a way out. And they do that in prayer and fasting in believing. Matthew uh, 21 22 says whatever things you ask in prayer believing you will receive being consistent in your prayer life praying according as god would have us to pray not for our own wants and desires but for what god has designed for us to be accomplished so god's name has not been spoken in this book per se but who else can his people cry out to but to him and then have a response well he'll hear and he'll act there's another thing going on here it's just a side note but it's something that we need to think about and that's the constant meeting of those who are being persecuted if nothing else just to encourage one another to exhort one another to console one another we see that in thessalonians where he says you know as often as you get together read this he tells them in thessalonians and he's talking about the return of christ you will be encouraged as often as we get together you know god's christ is coming back right this isn't the end this isn't all there is He's coming back. If you're saved, you'll have eternity in heaven with him. It'll be good. It won't be like here. It will be much better. So they weren't lazy in their own spiritual defense. 
Esther 4, 13. Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do you think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any of the other Jews? If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you will come to this kingdom, whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will, likely, will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. He did what he was supposed to do. She did what she was supposed to do. They weren't lazy. They didn't just lay down and let them run over them. They didn't just quit. Well, you, can't, uh, you guys can't meet together. We're meeting together. By the authority of God's word, it says not to forsake the assemblings of yourselves together. So we're going to meet together. I will be here. Jed will be here. Dave will be here. Be here. Come. Worship together. Be obedient in that. They weren't slack well, they had been slack in the past, but when the persecution came, instead of becoming fearful, becoming nervous, becoming inactive, they became more active. For the first time, they're like, it's on us. It's on us to save ourselves and to save this nation. And they saw it. So here's some things I want you to catch about these people of God that are caught in a nation that's not of God or is no longer God-fearing. It was very sad. Um, one of the congressman i saw just this little short thing one of the congressmen was talking about uh, a new law that they're trying to force through right now about transgender this and that and he's just reading from the bible is all he's doing he's reading from the bible god created man and woman in the image of god he created them and one of the other senators stood up and said something to the effect of uh, god and religion has no place in this senate meeting today okay now you know but in case you didn't know, now you know. You live in a land like Esther lived in. The one true God had no place in that land. But he can still occupy a person in that land. You can be that person. He can work through you. So here's the things. Number one, the need to maintain their set-apartness. They had started anew in this land. They had got the wrong names. They've, they've gotten off track. They began to name their kids after, you know, local, you know, cultural icons and idols. And they had lost out generationally. They'd lost out. You know, they, by this time, they weren't even doing the Passover anymore. It's tr terrible. But they had lost that way back there in Kings. They had already quit doing that stuff. And God's like, as long as you are alive until I return, and the first thing you're going to do in heaven, you know, is the Passover. Do the Passover. And they're like, eh, hey, we'll do it next year. We'll hit it next year. We'll get it then. So what happened, the first thing was recognition. They recognized that they had been separated from God and they sought to get back to God. They began to pray. They began to fast. They weren't just praying and fasting to Marduk or Ishtar here. They were praying and fasting to the Most High God and they were expecting an answer. So you could see that as recognition or repentance. They begin to seek God again. So the first thing is their need to maintain their set-apartness. Number two, the fervent effective prayer of a righteous believer availeth much. In 4.15, in 4, Esther 4, verse 15, Esther calls all believers to fast and pray that God might send salvation. And Mordecai, uh, that's where his name comes, Mordecai, um, uh, 
Mordecai says, you know what, Esther, here's the deal. Whether you do something or not, I believe that God is going to move in this because we are his chosen people. But maybe, just maybe, for such a time as this, you were put in this place and you could get the glory. So go before the king. So in 8 verse 17, it says as this thing starts rolling and Haman is exposed, there's an interesting thing that happens. The people of the land who were already perplexed at them going after the Jews, they're like, well, I need to be a Jew too. Look what it says. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews, and because fear of the Lord, uh, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Salvation is of the Jews. It was to the Jew first. It came from a Jew. It came from Jesus, the Jew. From the Jews, they recognized their need. And they're like, we've got to have that. Those are special people. They never mention God's name, but he's protecting them. They're not worshiping these idols, but there is some mover behind the scenes that is saving them. Because of prayer and fasting, pagans saw the hand of God moved and were moved themselves to follow God's people in such, with such a mighty and saving God. So asking in faith, believing. So the first one was recognition or repentance. The next one is asking in faith, believing. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And number three, there's always risk involved in the action that leads to victory in the life of the faithful believer or anyone. The guy that wins the Medal of Honor, he has to run out into the fire when nobody else will move. Otherwise, he's just another schlub. It's the guy that, that takes the grenade and goes and throws it in the machine gun bunker when it's got everybody else pinned down that gets the Medal of Honor. It's the guy that moves so that everyone else can be saved. That's the guy that gets the victory. It's the same with believers. It's the same with Esther and Mordecai. The reason they're in this book is because they were the ones that moved. And with the risk comes great victory and much rejoicing. All of chapter 4 and in all of chapters 8 through 10, Mordecai, who's not necessarily a trained combatant, although I did notice that he was Mordecai from the Benjamites, and those are the stone killers right there in the Old Testament. In fact, they're, uh, when Jacob names them the um, from the tribe of Benjamin, and he blesses them. He's like, you're some frisky guys. You're going to really be killers. He calls them that right off. He, they're just bad men anyway. So Mordecai can get it done. He's a Benjamite, and he's going to lead these Jews, and there's quite a few thousand that are killed when they have to defend themselves against those that would still try to rise up against them. So he gets the name. And after that, Mordecai, he's the man. He's the second only to the king. He gets the king's signet ring. He gets Haman's ring that Haman had, the second in command. He gets his ring, and now he's number two in the kingdom. So exhortation and action there. And number four is with miraculous victory comes recognition of the God who saves. And this should involve feasting. After the Israelites left Egypt, they had a dance party. After the battle of Jericho, dance party. After David returns the ark, dance party, and God even provides the, the food and the beverage and the quail. And in here, after this great success, we have a great dance party. 9 verse 19 is, is uh, one spot there. It says, Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. 
in verse 28, and these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, that the memory of them should not perish amongst the descendants. So today, all over the world this last week, Jews everywhere celebrated this feast. And they have these little ratcheting things, and they, whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they all boo and, and mock, and they dress up in, in costumes and things as Queen Esther and the king and, and Mordecai. And, and they have, it's, a big, it's a big party. It's a celebration of God's deliverance of them. And we need to be reminding one another, though we don't have all of the Jewish culture we don't understand a lot of that stuff. We weren't raised as Jews. We don't understand that culture. We don't have all that. But we should still remind one another how good God has been to us. If you're here today breathing air, you should remind someone else how good God has been to you. Ray come in this morning. He was telling me, man, is that weather out? Not beautiful out there? Yeah, it's nice. It's beautiful. It's nice. I, the snow was nice. That was good. God did both. The rain is good. It'll make the grass grow. It'll make the you know, hot and cold, it'll make the cows all get pneumonia, so it's good and bad. But, but I mean, just the, I mean, if you, if you could see the systems that are going on out there just in the climate and in creation, if you could see that, or your personal health, or your ability to make income, or your ability to think, or your ability to have wisdom. Whenever I meet someone with a little uh, mental illness or whatever, we deal with that a lot at the rescue mission stuff. I'm grateful to God that I have a a relatively sound mind. People tell me I'm crazy, but whatever. I think I got it together. And you probably think you got it together. But the reality is, man, it's a blessing from God if you have the ability to reason, get in your car and drive yourself. You can see out of your eyeballs. You can hear out of your ears. You have been blessed by God. And you need to see it as such. We need to exhort one another daily. Even when the, we, we let the news get us down, and we shouldn't. Because we can read Revelation, we can read all these other books, and we can see that every time, just like in Esther, God wins every time. Not some of the time, every time. He wins every time. And even if we're personally turned over to death, we still have eternal life through His Son. Revelation seventeen fourteen, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are, are the called, chosen, and faithful. Satan continues today to do what he's always done, to try to thwart God's plan. But God's people, who are called, chosen, and faithful, will end up with him in eternity. He has a mission for you. Accomplish his mission. I wrote a little uh, Sunday devotion there for you on, on the mission. What's our mission? It's to call people. It's to call people to the Father. So if you have Christ as Savior, you're called, chosen, and faithful, and you need only stand firm until the end. I've got to share one other thing. I discovered this on a... Uh, uh, Hebrews for Christian, if you, Hebrews for Christians, it's a really good website, you can look on there, they got all kind of stuff about feast days and things like that, and he's just a brilliant guy, he's a Messianic believer, and he's just a brilliant Hebrew speaker, and he gives Hebrew lessons on there and everything, if you're into that, but um, he had an interesting thing on there, so Jesus celebrated, so Purim and uh, Hanukkah are the only two feasts that aren't really uh, of the Mosaic feasts, of the ones from the Torah, right? But Jesus, it seems, celebrated both. We know he celebrated Hanukkah. And, um, but the other one's a little bit harder to discern. It may possibly be in John 5, 9. It talks about a, a Sabbath feast that they were having. But there's a date of the year called Yom Kippur. Remember Yom Kippur? Yom means day. Kippur means atonement, day of atonement, Okay. 
Now I want you to let's look at this word for just a second. I'm no Hebrew scholar. I'm not even a scholar. Yom is day. Kippur. P P U R. What was the name of the lot that was cast into the lot the lap? Anybody remember? Pur. It's this word right here. This is the trick right here. K. Yom Kippurim. Okay? Watch this. So Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Yom Kippurim means a day like Purim. There was a day like Purim. So the Day of Atonement, that's the day where all of our sins were atoned for, right? The Jews still do it with the two, the lamb and all that jazz, send one out in the wilderness. But Kippurim, a day like Purim. Uh, there was a day like Purim. It was the day that Jesus delivered all men from their ultimate enemy, death. He was the deliverer. He was the Mordecai. He delivered the people from death. It was a day like Purim. So in fact, in his death on the cross, a Jewish man came up with this way, 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 way back. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. They just refuse to accept him. But there was a day like Purim when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he delivered you from certain death. And you need, to, you need to tie on to that. When Esther and Mordecai first heard of this thing, they said, well, that's it, we're doomed. When Mary and Martha and those ladies were at the foot of the cross and John, they're like, well, this is it, we're doomed. But it was a day like Purim. The deliverer was right there, they just couldn't see it. And when he was restored to life, when he was resurrected... The deliverance came. Mordecai came and wiped out all the sin and death. He took care of it all right there in one pass. So on Yom Kippur is a day of fasting. You're supposed to fast the day before Purim. And then you're supposed to feast for two days on the day of Purim. So on Yom Kippur you fast, on Yom Kippurim you feast. Because God has defeated our enemy. So if you're on God's side, you're going to be fine. You just make sure you're on the right side there. So today we're going to have a special meal. Um, I had to look up what the meal was. It's nothing too funky, I promise. It's goat liver. No, I'm just kidding. It's turkey. <laughs> turkey is an acceptable meat for Yom Kippur, uh, Yom Kippurim, for Purim. Turkey. So we're going to have turkey. We're going to have a Thanksgiving feast on Purim. So we're going to have turkey and all oh, whatever else, mashed potatoes, gravy, and yams or whatever they call them here sweet potatoes and uh and then my wife and and miss jennifer made some special cookies i strongly encourage you to eat at least one and they're called haman's hat and what they are is supposed to be the picture of you're eating haman's head so the jews it's a traditional uh jewish treat that you have on yom kippur and they're filled with nutella if you like nutella or apricots or one other thing something else but they're pretty good I tried three before church just to make sure they were palatable. So make sure you try those. Know that those ladies put an awful lot of work in those and uh, trying to make those special for you so you can celebrate this feast. And this week, uh, maybe with your family, sit down and read um, Esther 10 chapters. The last, you know, chapter 10 is tiny, four or five verses. There's less verses in Esther than there is in Psalm 119, only 167 verses in there. So take the time to read that this week with your family.
go over it with your family and look for all the mysteries that's in there. You look for God's hand and how he works and then get on God's side. And let's be ministers of the gospel for him this week, okay? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are so grateful for your word and the, the things that you reveal to us. There's so many mysteries in there that we can never get a handle on this side of death. And when we get to heaven, you'll reveal them to us and we're going to be like, I can't believe I couldn't see that. Father, I thank you for your word and for its goodness to us. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It has everything that we need that pertains to life. Father, I pray for these that are here today. I know there may be some that may be in conflict in their spirit today about whether or not they're saved or whether or not they truly know you. And, and Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. I pray that you would reveal to them their need for a God who saves, that they're not going to make it out of here alive, that they need you and that there's one, an evil one, who would seek to destroy them in any way possible, Lord. I pray that today would be the day that they would open their eyes and, and they would have vision for the first time. They would see that, that you alone are the one who saves. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. I thank you for this place. I thank you for the hands that prepared the food. I pray for the, the man that prepared the food, Lord. I pray for his salvation, Lord. I pray that his heart would be broken he would be drawn to you, Lord. I thank you for your goodness and for your care for us. I thank you for these that have come, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the Feast of Purim, through that door. God bless y'all.